Well, hello again. <coughs> I'll add my welcome again. Uh, my name is Johnny, and I'm going to be looking this evening at um, the part of Paul's letter to the church in a place called Ephesus that's on page 978 of the Black Church Bibles. That's chapter 4 of Ephesians. And you might find it helpful to have that open in front of you as we go along this evening. So it's chapter 4 and we'll be reading from verse 17. Paul writes, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Now, before we think about that passage together, let me pray for us. Let me pray. The psalmist writes, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Our Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, which is sure and is steadfast. It's firmly fixed in the heavens. And we thank you, too, that you've revealed yourself to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus, And so we ask now that as we spend time thinking about your sure and certain word together, you would give us each ears to hear it, hearts to cherish it, and help us to live it out, that each of us might look more like Jesus. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory, and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I started to feel a bit of a panic 
as I realized what was going on. No one else seemed to have noticed, but it was surely only a matter of time. I was in a courtroom at Edinburgh Sheriff Court, standing at a table just in front of the sheriff's bench, surrounded by court productions and my own notes. And I was about to address the sheriff on behalf of my client. Everyone was dressed in usual courtroom attire. Sheriff had on the requisite white wig. Everyone else was in a suit and a black gown. But not me. I was in my pyjamas. And not even my own pyjamas. Pyjamas that I'd never seen before. They had little glow-in-the-dark bits on them. Now, if you're wondering why you haven't heard about that incident before, perhaps on Edinburgh Evening News or on the little funny bit at the end of the six o'clock news, it's because it didn't actually happen. I'm very, very sorry to disappoint. It was a dream. And I know it would have been a lot more fun if it really did happen, but it was a real dream. I dreamed it whilst I was training as a solicitor, and I was due to make my first appearance in court later that week. And apparently, you may well have had a similar dream yourself. Apparently, it's quite a common dream to have when you're undergoing some big change or facing a new experience. You are giving a big presentation, or you're teaching a lesson, and you look down and realize that you're wearing your white polar bear slippers. They call it an anxiety dream. But it's a bit of a silly thing to dream, really, because when I had the dream, I'd been alive for well over 20 years, and not once had I ever turned up at school or at work in well, having forgotten to change out of my Power Rangers pyjamas, the anxiety didn't relate to a real risk. But actually, in his letter to a church in a place called Ephesus, Paul thinks that this is a very likely risk indeed. That Christians there and Christians today are at risk of not getting changed, of being inappropriately dressed. We're studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians on Sunday evenings this term. And our past few sessions in Ephesians, we've been really steeped in big, rich theology. God's plan for all of creation. God's eternal plan for his church. It's all been really, really wonderful stuff. But as I read this evening's passage a few minutes ago, you might have picked up on quite how practical it all sounds. Paul starts to dish out advice on what Christians are to do how they're to behave, how they're to live. So look down just very briefly, verse 25. Paul says, don't lie, put away falsehood. Instead, speak the truth. Or down further still, verse 31. Don't be bitter or angry or slanderous or malicious. But instead, verse 32, be kind to one another. And over the next few weeks, we'll see Paul addressing all sorts of different areas of practical living marriage and family and work. And in Ephesians, he uses the image of a wardrobe change to help us get our heads around what he's talking about. So look down to verse 22 for a second. He says this, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Off with the old and on with the new. And that's the rhythm of the rest of this chapter, and it's the rhythm of a fair chunk of the rest of the letter. 
But at first glance, it might sound like the kind of thing that each of us, I guess, will have heard in one form or another on the 1st of January this year and every year through TV screens and email inboxes. New year, new you. And what they mean when they send you those emails is, well, this is the perfect chance to turn over a new leaf, to make yourself new, get back into those good habits and routines, whether going to the gym or eating healthily. And we might think that that's what Paul's doing in Ephesians, that he's like a, a, a spiritual personal trainer. All the practical teaching over the next couple of chapters is to show us how to make ourselves new. And if you're here this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, that might be exactly what you think Christianity is like. We get together each week on a Sunday to, to G each other up. Someone like me stands up and tells us all how to be better people because it's nice to be nice and then send each other out into the week trying to do it. And maybe as I read these verses a few minutes ago, it only just confirmed that suspicion. Or even if you are a Christian, maybe that's how you feel about the Christian life too. You know in your head that becoming a Christian was all of God. He is gracious and kind, and I can't add anything to what he's done to rescue me, welcome me into his family. But functionally, each day, I'm trying to remake myself. Well, Paul does speak about an old self and a new self. And you're right to think that he does speak about it in the context of a change of behavior. But what he does in Ephesians is far more radical than New Year, New You. And if we're really going to understand what he's saying, we have to start where Paul starts. We're going to do that under our first heading for this evening. If you were given a service sheet on your way in, there are a couple of headings on the back of that that you might find helpful to have in front of you as to where we'll be going this evening. So the first heading on the service sheet, remember what you learned there is a brand new holy you. Now we do get a hint right from the start of our passage for this evening that Paul isn't just a moral personal trainer. He starts this little section of his letter off with a warning in verse 17. And we might expect him to warn us against immoral behavior if that's what the whole passage about it was about. So read verse 17 with me. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles or the non-Christians do, stealing stuff and treating each other really badly. But that isn't what he says, is it? Notice what he says. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Do you see all of the thinking rather than doing language? See, if this was Paul's call to a moral life, if he was a first century Mary Whitehouse, just getting us all to change our behavior, then at the very least, we might expect him to come out of the blocks specifying some of the stuff we're meant to avoid. But it's not until we get to verse 19 that he actually describes how any of that thinking stuff has any impact on how we behave. Verse 19, sensuality, greedy to practice any kind of impurity. And the point is, Paul isn't just going after behavior in Ephesians 4, giving us a program, three steps to make yourself new. He's going after how we think. 
He tells us exactly how these Christians used to think before they were Christians, how the world around them currently thinks in relation to God. Futile, darkened understanding, ignorant of God. It's harsh language. It is harsh language. But he says that if you're a Christian, that isn't how you think anymore. Why? Verse 20, Paul says that that way of thinking is not how you learned Christ. A fascinating little phrase, isn't it? How you learned Christ. And he explains what it was to learn Christ. He says they're to put off that old way of thinking, be transformed by the renewing of their minds, and put on the new self. Now let's take a step back for a moment. If I think Paul's argument is not just a moral reform argument. He isn't just a behavioral personal trainer. And you might look at verses 17 to 19 and be on board with that. See that Paul's attacking a way of thinking as much as a way of behaving. But we can't get away from the fact that he still lands on put off the old self and put on the new self. So how is what I'm saying any different from new year, new you? Is it just another way of saying the same thing? Well, have a quick look at verse 24 again. Notice who is doing what and when it's happening. We, says Paul, are to put on the new self. That's what we are to do. But that new self, says Paul, was created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When? Well, it's already been done. Paul says that that holy, righteous new self has already been created. What he's saying is that pursuing godliness as a Christian isn't a process of trying to make a new you, new year, new you. What he says is that there already is a new you if you're a Christian. That's already happened. It's a done deal. You have been completely remade by God. And that's a really key idea for us to get our heads around, both for this week's chapter and for the rest of the letter. If we are to avoid a Mary Whitehouse-style moral reform lecture series, Paul unpacks it a bit more fully in chapter two. Just if you could turn back uh, a page just for one moment. I'm not going to have us skipping around too much this evening, I promise, but I think it helps to see how Paul works through his own argument. Look down briefly at verse one of chapter two. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's who you were as a Christian before you became a Christian, spiritually dead. But, Peter read this verse a few minutes ago, but, verse 5, God made us alive together with Christ. Therefore, verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what God has done. Notice, none of that is what we are doing. It's what God has done. If you're a Christian, that's who you are now. Now, in the first series of the TV program, The Crown, there's one episode that tells the story of the Duke of Windsor, the uncrowned Edward VIII. As many of you know, whether you've seen the series or not, he came to the throne in 1936, um, but he wanted to marry the American divorcee Wallace Simpson, so he abdicated. And I recently read that in an interview given shortly before he died, Edward remembered his boyhood as the Prince of Wales. And he recounted an occasion when his dad, King George V, gave him into trouble for something he'd done. 
the young prince was a bit confused. He wasn't sure why what he had done was actually worthy of a telling off. My dear boy, King George answered, you must always remember who you are. Why does Paul say that the Christians in Ephesus aren't to think like the world around them is thinking and therefore behave like the world around them is behaving? My dear Christians, you must always remember who you are. You have been remade after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, says Paul, verse 24. That old self, that old way of thinking and therefore behaving, it just isn't who you are anymore. Now that might sound like semantics, but can you see how that changes the way you approach living as a Christian? Your job is not to remake yourself. Remaking yourself places all of the emphasis on you, on what you're doing, on how you're doing it. Paul says, there is a new self that has already been remade by God. And your job, rest of chapter 4, chapter 5, front half of chapter 6, as a Christian is to put that new self on. To be who you already are. That's our first point this evening. Remember what you learned when you learned Christ. Or more to the point, remember who you are now. But all of that might raise a bit of a question in your mind. If God has done all of that, <clears throat> he has made us new, then the obvious implication is that Christians are now on easy street. We should just sit back and enjoy. But that isn't where Paul lands, is it? Yes, he says, you've been remade, that's past tense, there is a new you. But for most of the rest of the letter, he shows us the shape of the Christian life, which is to put that new self on, to be who you are. That's what we're going to think about under our next heading. Be who you are. Put off your old self and put on the new self. Look down with me at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. Notice the rhythm that Paul uses, put off falsehood, the mark of the old self, and put on, speaking truthfully to your neighbor, the mark of the new self, put off and put on. Now my guess is that most of us don't ever really think of ourselves as being liars. We might lie from time to time. I'm not a liar. <clears throat> Part of the reason we might think like that is that for many of us, it's usually a bit more subtle than the barefaced lie. So we tell a story in such a way as to paint ourselves in a better light than someone else. Or to paint someone else in a worse light than they really should be seen. Usually to gain some kind of advantage over them, socially or in some other way. Paul says that if you're a Christian, that isn't who you are anymore. Put him off. Put her off. The new you is someone who actively speaks truth. Put him or her on. Speak truth. Next, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity 
to the devil. Now, from what Paul says, it's possible to be angry and not to sin. And in fact, we know that. We know from the gospel accounts of Jesus' life that Jesus himself got angry. For example, he got angry when he saw people using God's temple as somewhere to make a few quid. He turned the outer courts of the temple into a market square. We might call that righteous anger. Is that what your anger usually looks like? Because I know it's not what mine usually looks like. I'm more likely to get angry because someone's parked their car over my driveway. Hardly righteous anger, is it? Now, when he says to not let the sun go down on your anger, I don't think his point is just about it getting dark at the end of the day. Otherwise, people in different parts of the world can be angry for longer than others. So if you live in northern Finland, then you can stay angry for months at a time. But if you live in Aberdeen, and depending on what time of year it is, you've got somewhere between half an hour and two hours to be angry. I don't think that's Paul's point. In Robert Burns' poem, Tam Shanter, the main character in the poem, Tam, has wronged his wife. And Burns says that while Tam's out with his friends, his wife is at home, nursing her wrath to keep it warm. I think that's closer to what Paul means. Nursing anger, harboring bitterness at another Christian who you feel, well, they've wronged me. We let it fester, don't we? We bring it up in our mind's eye. Paul says, that isn't who you are anymore. That's part of the old self. Put that off. Thirdly, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, again, I doubt there would be too many folks in here who would self-identify, certainly not openly, as thieves. If someone, after the service during coffee, you ask them what they do for a living and they tell you you're a thief, you're going to raise the eyebrows. It's not something we often do. But what about rounding the numbers down on our tax return? Or rounding them up on our timesheet at work? Or advising a client they really need a piece of work done? They don't really need it done. That isn't who you are anymore, says Paul. Take it off. And instead, what he says is work hard so that you have something to share with those in need. And that's a complete mindset shift, isn't it? It doesn't, say, it doesn't just say stop stealing. He says work hard so you have something to share. And I think he probably has in mind those who are in need in a local church community. I'll explain why in a minute or two. That's where I think he's landing. Now, at a very practical level, have a think about what you would do if you go into work tomorrow and you find out that your boss is giving you a raise. Or if your your company has a bumper piece of business come through the door. Will your mind race towards the upgrades in lifestyle that you'd be able to afford? Or to the struggling people in your local church family that you might be able to help out? Paul says that your new self doesn't just stop stealing. They work hard to earn money in order to give it away. It's a radical change, isn't it? That's what Paul says the new self is. 
Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, my guess is that a lot of Christians try not to say anything inappropriate or rude when we're around other Christians. That's possibly mainly a cultural thing. You might feel that it's rude or socially awkward. But Paul says that the new self, this new self that's been created in righteousness and holiness, doesn't just avoid saying the wrong thing, doesn't just stand silently in a conversation in case they say the wrong thing. He says the new self looks out for opportunities to build other people up. Have a think on the kinds of conversations that might be changed by that mindset, even after a Sunday service here at Chalmers. Looking for opportunities to build each other up with what we say, rather than tear each other down. At a really practical level, if you're part of a house group here at Chalmers, or you're walking closely with someone else in the local church family, and you've seen progress in their life as a Christian, can I encourage you to tell them? It's just a really small thing, but it can make a huge difference. And Paul says, that's the shape of the new you, using your words to build other people up. To maturity in the Lord Jesus. Put that new self on. And then verse 31 and 32. Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, verse 31 might seem like a bit of a junk drawer verse where Paul kind of throws in a random list of virtues that he hasn't had time to unpack properly yet. But look at where he lands at the end of verse 32. He draws all the loose threads together. Says the new self treats other people just as God treated you by sending his son Jesus with grace and forgiveness and kindness. Now, I know we've cantered through that, but there's one big theme that I've kind of skipped over as we worked through it, partly just because I wanted us to see it as a whole. I wonder if you noticed as we moved through chapter four that Paul says there's a particular context in mind for this putting off and putting on. Look at verse 25 briefly. We're to put off falsehood and put on truth. Why? Because we are members of one another. In verse 29, no corrupting talk, only what is good for building up. Building up what? Well, we've seen in recent weeks, that's clearly building up a local church. Verse 32, be kind, says Paul, to who? To everyone? Well, I guess, yes, should be kind to everyone, but that isn't what he says. He says, this church in Ephesus are to be kind to one another. All of this is to take place throughout our lives, putting on the new self. But he has a particular eye to the local church family. And that makes sense when we have a think about the big picture of Ephesians. If you haven't been here for the last few uh, sessions in Ephesians, we've seen that God's cosmic eternal plan for all of creation is to unite all things under himself. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And he says the first taste of that plan, the show home in God's building project, is a local church family. 
Being who you are is a personal thing. It's something that each of us as Christians have to do every day in our workplace with our family and our friends. Put on the new self. But being who you are is really important in how it changes how we relate to one another as a church family. It's an incredible thought that this little church family, Chalmers Church, is part of how God has chosen to reveal his wisdom to the world and to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's bonkers. And it's absolutely wonderful. Putting on the new self in the way we treat each other, well, it matters. Really matters. Now, as we close, let me try and draw some of those threads together. Firstly, if you're here this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, and you do think that this church is just a club of nice people who get together to encourage each other to be nicer each week. I hope you've been able to see from what we've been thinking about, certainly what we started with, that that isn't what we're all about. Because our problem is far, far deeper than that would solve. Paul says that before we were Christians, we were spiritually dead, cut off from God. Just trying to change our behavior and do nothing else is like us trying to turn, forgive the analogy, turn pajamas into a morning suit. It's just not going to happen. Paul says that we do need a new self. But his point in chapter 2 is that you can't make it yourself. You need God to make that new self for you. And the wonderful, wonderful good news of Jesus is that God himself intervened to take us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's what a Christian is. Not a nice person. Someone who has been taken from death to life. And all we brought to the table for that was a recognition of our sin, our daily rejection of God, a contrite heart for that rejection, and a trust in Jesus to take that punishment that we were due for that rejection. And so if you are here this evening and you're not a Christian, please do think on that. That offer of new life, of eternal life, isn't just something for nice people. In fact, it's only open to people who know in their heart of hearts that, well, they aren't very nice at all. Not least when it comes to how they treat God. If you'd like to chat about that, please do grab me after this service. I'd love to speak with you or pray with you. And lastly, if you are a Christian here this evening, there are loads and loads of specific takeaway points from the passage this evening, but I'm going to leave you with two. Firstly, the Christian life is something that has been done for you. It's an act of recreation. God has made you new. Give thanks to God that he has done that. And remember who you are now. New self, righteous, holy, likeness of God. That's who you really are if you're a Christian. And secondly, because point number one is true, if you're a Christian, God has remade you. And put off that old self. That isn't who you are anymore. And in your speech, in how you treat people, in your work, in every area of your life, be who you are. Be who God has made you to be. Put on that new self. 
Let me pray for us as we close. Our Lord and Father, we do thank you for the good news of the Lord Jesus. That those of us who are spiritually dead have been made alive through nothing but your grace. And we thank you that as you made us alive, you also made us new. There is a new self created in righteousness and holiness. Father, we ask that as any of us who are Christians here this evening, you would help us to be who we are, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And we ask that you would help us to do that here as part of a local church family, that even in the way we treat each other, we would display your manifold wisdom to all around us. And for any here who do not know you, we ask that you would take them by your power, your Holy Spirit, from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. We ask all of these things in your precious name. Amen.